Chapter 2 of Dope. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Noel Vox. Dope by Sax Romer. Chapter 2 The Apartments of Kazma. It was rather less than two hours earlier on the same evening that Quentin Gray came out of the confectioner's shop in Old Bond Street carrying a neat parcel. Yellow dusk was closing down upon this bazaar of the new Babylon, and many of the dealers in precious gems, vendors of rich stuffs, and makers of modes had already deserted their shops. Smartly dressed showgirls, saleswomen, girl clerks, and others crowded the pavements, which at high noon had been thronged with ladies of fashion. Here a tailor's staff, there a hatter's, lingered a while as iron shutters and gratings were secured, and bidding one another good night, separated and made off towards tube and bus. The working day was ended. Society was dressing for dinner. Gray was about to enter the cab which awaited him, and his fresh-colored boyish face wore an expression of eager expectancy which must have betrayed the fact to an experienced beholder that he was hurrying to keep an agreeable appointment. Then, his hand resting on the handle of the cab door, this expression suddenly changed to one of alert suspicion. A tall, dark man, accompanied by a woman muffled in grey furs and wearing a silk scarf over her hair, had passed on foot along the opposite side of the street. Gray had seen them through the cab windows. His smooth brow wrinkled and his mouth tightened to a thin straight line beneath the fair, regulation moustache. He fumbled under his overcoat for loose silver, drew out a handful, and paid off the taxi man. Sometimes walking in the gutter in order to avoid the throngs upon the pavement, regardless of the fact that his glossy dress boots were becoming spattered with mud, Gray hurried off in pursuit of the pair. Twenty yards ahead, he overtook them, as they were on the point of passing a picture dealer's window, from which yellow light streamed forth into the humid dusk. They were walking slowly, and Gray stopped in front of them. "'Hello, you two, he cried. "'Where are you off to? I was on my way to call for you, Rita.' Flushed and boyish, he stood before them, and his annoyance was increased by their failure to conceal the fact that his appearance was embarrassing, if not unwelcome. Mrs. Monty Irvin was a petite, pretty woman, although some of the more wonderful bronze tints of her hair suggested the employment of henna, and her naturally lovely complexion was delicately and artistically enhanced by art. Nevertheless, the flower-like face, peeping out from the folds of a gauzy scarf, like a rose from a mist whilst her soft little chin nestled into the fur, might have explained, even in the case of an older man, the infatuation which Quentin Gray was at no pains to hide. She glanced up at her companion, Sir Lucian Pine, a swarthy, cynical type of aristocrat, imperturbably. Then, I had left a note for you, Quentin, she said hurriedly. She seemed to be in a dangerously high-strung condition. But I have booked a table and a box, cried Gray, with a hint of juvenile petulance. My dear Gray, said Sir Lucian coolly, we are men of the world, and we do not look for consistency in womenfolk. Mrs. Irvin has decided to consult a palmist or a hypnotist or some such occult authority before dining with you this evening. Doubtless she seeks to learn if the play to which you propose to take her is an amusing one. His smile of sardonic amusement Gray found to be almost insupportable, and although Sir Lucian refrained from looking at Mrs. Irvin whilst he spoke, it was evident enough that his words held some covert significance for, "'You know perfectly well that I have a particular reason for seeing him,' she said. "'A woman's particular reason is a man's feeble excuse,' murmured Sir Lucian rudely. 
least according to a learned Arabian philosopher. I was going to meet you at Princess, said Mrs. Irvin hurriedly, and again glancing at Gray. There was a pathetic hesitancy in her manner, the hesitancy of a weak woman who adheres to a purpose only by supreme effort. Might I ask, said Gray, the name of the pervert you are going to consult? Again she hesitated and glanced rapidly at Sir Lucian, but he was staring coolly in another direction. Casma, she replied in a low voice. Casma, cried Gray. The man who sells perfume and pretends to read dreams? What an extraordinary notion! Wouldn't tomorrow do? He will surely have shut up shop. I have been at pains to ascertain, replied Sir Lucian. At Mrs. Irvin's express desire that the man of mystery is still in session and will receive her. Beneath the mask of nonchalance which he wore, it might have been possible to detect excitement repressed with difficulty, and had Gray been more composed and not obsessed with the idea that Sir Lucian had deliberately intruded upon his plans for the evening, he could not have failed to perceive that Mrs. Monte Irvin was feverishly preoccupied with matters having no relation to dinner and the theatre, but his private suspicions grew only the more acute. Then if the dinner is not off, he said, may I come along and wait for you? At Casmus? asked Mrs. Irvin. Certainly. She turned to Sir Lucian. Shall you wait? It isn't much use, as I'm dining with Quinton. If I do not intrude, replied the baronet, I will accompany you as far as the cave of the oracle, and then bid you good night. The trio proceeded along Old Bond Street. Quentin Gray regarded the story of Casma as a very poor lie devised on the spur of the moment. If he had been less infatuated, his natural sense of dignity must have dictated an offer to release Mrs. Irvin from her engagement. But jealousy stimulates the worst instincts and destroys the best. He was determined to attach himself as closely as the old man of the sea attached himself to S. Sindibad in order that the lie might be unmasked. Mrs. Irvin's palpable embarrassment and nervousness he ascribed to her perception of his design. A group of shop-girls and others waiting for buses rendered it impossible for the three to keep abreast, and Gray, falling to the rear, stepped upon the foot of a little man who was walking close behind him. "'Sorry, sir,' said the man, suppressing an exclamation of pain, for the fault of in Gray's. Gray muttered an ungenerous acknowledgment, all anxiety to regain the side of Mrs. Irvin, for she seemed to be speaking rapidly and excitedly to Sir Lucian. He recovered his place as the two turned in at a lighted doorway. Upon the wall was a bronze plate bearing the inscription, Casma, second floor. Gray fully expected Mrs. Irvin to suggest that he should return later, but without a word she began to ascend the stairs. Gray followed, Sir Lucian standing aside to give him precedence. On the second floor was a door painted in oriental fashion. It possessed neither bell nor knocker. But as one stepped upon the threshold, this door opened noiselessly, as if dumbly inviting the visitor to enter the square apartment discovered. This apartment was richly furnished in the Arab manner, and lighted by a fine brass lamp swung upon chains from the painted ceiling. The intricate perforations of the lamp were inset with colored glass, and the result was a subdued and warm illumination. Odd-looking oriental vessels, long-necked jars, jugs, tenuous spouts, and squat bowls possessing engraved and figured covers emerged from the shadows of niches. A low divan with gaily colored mattresses extended from the door around one corner of the room, where it terminated beside a kind of mashribia cabinet or cupboard. Beyond this cabinet was a long, low counter laden with statuettes of Nile gods, amulets, mummy beads, and little stoppered flasks of blue enamel ware. 
There were two glass cases filled with other strange-looking antiquities. Faint perfume was perceptible. Sir Lucian, entering last of the party, the door closed behind him, and from the cabinet on the right of the divan a young Egyptian stepped out. He wore the customary white robe, red sash, and red slippers, and a tarbush. The little scarlet cap, commonly called a fez, was set upon his head. He walked to a door on the left of the counter and slid it noiselessly open. Bowing gravely, the Sheikh el Kazma awaits, he said, speaking with the soft intonation of a native of Upper Egypt. It now became evident, even to the infatuated Gray, that Mrs. Irvin was laboring under the influence of tremendous excitement. She turned to him quickly, and he thought that her face looked almost haggard, whilst her eyes seemed to have changed color, become lighter, although he could not be certain that this latter effect was not due to the peculiar illumination of the room. But when she spoke, her voice was unsteady. "'Will you see if you can find a cab?' she said. "'It is so difficult at night, and my shoes will get frightfully muddy crossing Piccadilly. I shall not be more than a few minutes.' She walked through the doorway, the Egyptian standing aside as she passed. He followed her, but came out again almost immediately, reclosed the door, and retired into the cabinet, which was evidently his private cubicle. Silence claimed the apartment. Sir Lucian threw himself nonchalantly upon the divan, and took out his cigarette case. "'Will you have a cigarette, Gray?' he asked. "'No, thanks,' replied the other in tones of smothered hostility. He was ill at ease and paced the apartment nervously. Pine lighted a cigarette and tossed the extinguished match into a brass bowl. "'I think,' said Gray jerkily, "'I shall go for a cap. Are you remaining?' "'I am dining at the club,' answered Pine. "'But I can wait until you return.' "'As you wish,' jerked Gray. "'I don't expect to be long.' He walked rapidly to the outer door, which opened at his approach, and closed noiselessly behind him as he made his exit. End of chapter 2 Recording by Noel Vox